I don't often start a sermon this way, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, um, just feeling the weight of incapability uh, this morning. In light of divine truth and what all is before us today, um, Lord, I ask for just mercy and divine grace in the words that I'm speaking. I'd ask that you apply that same mercy and grace to the ears that are listening. And uh, Lord, that we would walk out of here having encountered Jesus as he's presented in the words of Scripture. Um, Lord, we thank you for our worship time to this point. Bless us as we continue in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark 5. We're going to begin in verse 21 here in just a few moments. The fifth chapter of Mark has been referred to as the St. Jude chapter of the New Testament. The St. Jude chapter. And the reason for the label is this. St. Jude in church history, particularly within the Catholic tradition, he is known as the saint of the hopeless. Officially, St. Jude is the patron saint of the impossible which if you think back to last week in our study of the Gerizim demoniac, you remember that he was a man that from the perspective of his society, his family, his friends, those up and down that eastern edge of the Sea of Galilee, the demoniac was a lost cause if there ever was one. Here was a man, if you could even call him a man anymore, who was unclean and uncontrollable and unstable, a man possessed by a demonic horde named Legion. He was a harm to himself. He was a harm to others. He was a wreck until the Lord Jesus comes along and he delivers him in an instant. In this bizarre and moving scene, Jesus shows the demon-possessed man what he's been saved from. And he does this by permitting the demons that had filled him to enter into and destroy this great herd of pigs. And after the dramatic deliverance, Mark tells us the man, he is clothed, he's at rest, he's sitting down, he's in his right mind, and he's in such right mind that Jesus sends him out as a preacher, the first preacher Jesus ever sent out was this former demoniac, a Gentile, out to tell others what the mercy and grace of God had done in his life. The case of the demoniac was an impossible case a hopeless cause, and yet Jesus heals him, destroys his demons, and then sends him out to preach. And there are two more hopeless cases highlighted in our text for today. Let's begin reading in verse 21. Again, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side... A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. 
She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the, to the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the word of the Lord. So you have these two miracles, and we're, we actually didn't get to the next one. The next one's going to be next week. We have some, some foreshadowing toward it there at the beginning of the passage. But these two miracles, the, the sickness of this woman and the sickness and ultimately the death of Jairus' daughter... These are the third and fourth miracles and a succession of miracles that started in the previous chapter. And with these two miracles, you have another occasion where Mark employs a literary device. It's something I referred to a few weeks back. I called it a chiasm or a, or a Markan sandwich. And Mark does this several times in his gospel. He builds sort of an Oreo cookie uh, by, by starting a narrative section Then he interrupts it with another narrative of teaching, sort of the middle of the sandwich or the cookie, and then he'll finish the original narrative uh, in conclusion. And it's exactly what he's done here. He's started with Jairus coming to Jesus. He's included the woman uh, and her issue of blood, and then he'll conclude as we look next week at Jairus' daughter and the miracle he'll perform there. So we have the, the setting of a new scene. It's by the sea, likely back near the city of Capernaum. So it's on the north or, northwestern shore of the sea. Mark actually records 15 different events that take place in this general location. And when Jesus arrives to this familiar shore, immediately there is a crowd. He doesn't, or, or excuse me, he hasn't been gone from this area very long, perhaps just overnight. I'm sure word arrived ahead of him that the boat that Jesus and his disciples were traveling in was coming back to the area, so a crowd had already formed there to greet him. And then amidst the crowd, again, the crowds are now just repeatedly referred to as great. Amidst this great thronging crowd, a ruler of the synagogue, a man named Jairus, comes to Jesus, and he's begging him to save his daughter because she's at the point of death. The language describes that The little girl's sickness is so grave and so severe that her condition is best described as at the end. She's at the end. And it's interesting to compare Jesus' arrival back near Capernaum there to his recent arrival on the eastern edge of the sea. You remember the disciple had, they'd left this area outside of Capernaum. He'd been doing some teaching. He taught with parables at this spot. They'd left just 24 hours earlier. They were, as Jesus told them, going over to the other side. And as they made their way across the sea, they got caught in a great storm. Jesus calmed the great storm, and then they finally arrived in the Gentile area on the eastern shore. And when they arrived on the eastern shore, nobody was around. There was no crowd, no fanfare, no critical scribes or Pharisees about to pick apart what he was about to do. 
But there was a raging, naked, demon-possessed man who ran up to Jesus, and the legion of demons within him begged Jesus not to throw them into the abyss. It's a pretty dramatic scene, and it's a pretty fun passage to preach. Well, in our text today, when Jesus arrives back from this healing of the demoniac, it's not an empty shoreline he comes back to. No, a crowd, as I said, is waiting. But just like the prior scene, when he steps ashore, a man does run up to him. It's another kind of desperate man that runs up to him. This man, very different from the demoniac, this man who runs to Jesus, is a ruler of the synagogue. So, sort of a caretaker of the Capernaum synagogue. Not a teacher, necessarily, but more the general manager of the facility. He comes to Jesus in the same posture of the demoniac. He comes begging... But his need is very different from the demoniac. He's begging for the life of his little girl. And just as the listener, just as the reader, is getting emotionally pulled into the story of Jairus, just as you start to think, whoa, the ruler of the synagogue is asking Jesus for a miracle. This would have been a really respected man. He would have seen Jesus heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day. And he would have seen Jesus drive a demon from a from a man in the Capernaum synagogue. He would have been honored by those scribes and Pharisees that are already waiting and wanting to have Jesus killed. So just as you start to process the drama unfolding with Jairus coming to Jesus, enter the woman with an issue of blood. And the reader is now pulled into the personal story of another hopeless cause. So just in light of the intense drama that both of these stories hold. This is why I stopped short in my reading of the text this morning. We're going to look only today at the middle part of the Oreo. So verses 25 through 34, where Jesus is displaying his authority over disease uh, and the ailing of this poor woman. And next week we'll look at how Jesus displays his power over death itself and how he deals with Jairus's daughter. So these 10 verses, 25 through 44, a very descriptive, in, in, in a very descriptive and empathetic manner, these verses describe the plight of a woman whose name we do not know, whose future we have no explanation of, but here Mark, through the eyewitness of Peter, tells of her disease, her desire, and ultimately her deliverance. And those are my three points this morning, a woman's disease, desire, and in deliverance. Let's go. First, a woman's disease. We are told very simply that she suffered from an issue of blood. This phrase literally means that she was hemorrhaging or, or bleeding, so she's likely dealing with some menstrual type of issue. The word issue means a flowing of blood. So whatever may have caused this internal hemorrhage, it's safe to say that she was a very sick woman. The verb, the verb tense indicates that it was a continual ongoing ailment. So there was a a permanence to her condition. It just didn't go away. It was constant. And a constant flow of blood such as this would have caused this woman really untold suffering. I'm just going to walk through the areas in which she suffered, six ways that she suffered. They correspond with the six participles in the passage. First, clearly she suffered physically. 
So from the constant blood loss, this poor woman would have been weak and anemic. She would lack energy. She'd be prone to other kinds of sicknesses as well. So her body is just in a constant state of exhaustion. So living a daily routine life would have been just so, so tiring for this woman. You ever have those days when you're just zapped? No energy, just a deep sense of fatigue Well, a person dealing with continual blood loss would feel this way basically all the time. The word plague used to describe her disease is the same word that's elsewhere in Scripture translated scourge. And scourging, you you remember, was a way that they beat prisoners in the first century. So both Jesus and Paul, they were scourged. And this woman's blood issue, it was like a scourge, just, just constantly beating her down day by day. She's suffering physically. For 12 years, she's been enduring this condition. So she suffered physically. She suffered medically. How is that different? Well, we're told that she had tried all the medical remedies that physicians of her day could provide. And not only were they ineffective, we are told that she actually suffered under the care of these treatments, which is not much of an advertisement for the Galilean Medical Association, the old GMA, if there ever was one, they didn't help her. They didn't, they didn't even understand the pathology of disease or of illness in the first century. They, they, they couldn't help her. Physicians didn't help, which, according to the Talmud, which, remember, the Talmud was this set of Jewish rabbinical writings, these commentaries on the law and the Old Testament and, and on the traditions The prescriptions in the Talmud for a woman who had the problem that this woman likely had was that she was to carry, listen to this, this is wild, carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and and carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag in the winter or carry a barley corn found in donkey dung or drink wine with onions, obviously. She's not getting any help from this stuff. And by the way, and this just highlights the human element of the New Testament writings, Mark says here in our text that no physician could help her. Luke, however, who also records this miracle, he left that part out. Luke, being a physician, Luke just says she was incurable. (laughs) Gary's laughing, good. So she'd suffered medically. She'd also suffered socially. She almost certainly was not married because through physical contact, her husband, or excuse me, her uncleanness would defile her husband. So even if she had ever been married, her husband would have probably divorced her. She had no social life because of her unclean status. Her condition left her likely on the fringes of society. She probably had to beg for her food. She was largely ignored, certainly an outcast, so she suffered socially. Fourth, she suffered emotionally. The passage says that she had been in this condition for 12 years. So that no doubt had some emotional, some psychological effects. If you've ever been in chronic pain, you know that it has a way of just wearing you down emotionally. There is a darkness that will not lift when you are chronically hurting. So depression is a very real thing to those who suffer Long, She clearly was under emotional suffering. She had also suffered religiously. 
according to the law, if you want to look back at, Le- at Leviticus 15, this woman was considered unclean. And I've, I've already mentioned this. Unclean means that anything or anyone that she touched was also unclean. So as a result, it was not only social isolation that she had to endure, but also the law prohibited her from going to the temple or to the synagogue. Therefore, she was cut off from worship. She was cut off from the worshiping community. And to be cut off from those things is essentially to be cut off from God. This condition has alienated her from God. She's also suffered financially. The passage tells us that she was so desperate to be healed that she had spent all she had. The doctors and their useless remedies, these things had not helped her. All it had done was drain her bank account dry. So this woman, she's left penniless, she is destitute, she's in suffering. And when you think about human history, and, and when you think about the sheer volume of people in our world who currently lived, or since the first century, have lived in conditions like these, it's startling to think about the number of people who would directly relate to this story. I wonder just how many people have identified directly with this poor woman. Literally millions of people, have con- their hearts have connected with her condition. And even some of you, I know, in our, even in our more modern first century, or excuse me, first world um, context, maybe you don't have her specific illness, but, but like her, you have some condition. You're filled with some suffering or sorrow, and it's been continual and enduring, and it may be that you feel like a hopeless cause. This woman's story connects with our hearts. And Mark gives a vivid description, a much more vivid description than Matthew or Luke gives. And I think Mark gives this description because she does serve as a picture of two types of people in our world. This woman paints a clear picture of every person who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. All of us, lost in our sins, we're all in a defiled condition. It's a condition we cannot get rid of. It's a condition that can isolate us from others. It certainly alienates us from God. And it is a condition that's made no better despite all of our best efforts. We simply can't get well on our own. And there are many, many people who spend their entire lives searching for help for their condition. And they'll try all sorts of crazy ways. But instead of getting better, they only get worse. They, they only get harder in their hearts, more deeply rooted in their sins. And all the efforts at self-improvement and religion and hobbies and distractions, they will not help the lost man's condition. So she's a picture of all those with, who are without Christ as Savior. Second, she's also a picture of those believers who, who just live under a heavy burden. I've been in church work long enough to know that there are many, many Christians who live life just discouraged and defeated. Just discouraged and and defeated. They, They try everything in their power to get better. They've tried everything they know to handle their problems. They read all the books and they listen to all their preachers and, and they've gotten, they get advice from the best sources, but, but they just, 
they don't get better. Their life is just messed up. Something stymies growth. Something impedes peace and wholeness. They just suffer. And if that describes your life today, either of those two categories, let's pay attention to this woman's story. Second point, we have a woman's desire. So obviously she desired to be healed. Verse 27 states that she had heard reports about Jesus. So she's probably not from Capernaum, or she would have seen these miracles with her own eyes. She's coming based on report. The historian Eusebius believed her to be from Caesarea Philippi, which was a town at the base of Mount Hermon, about 25 miles north of this area. So it doesn't necessarily matter where she's from. Somewhere, from someone, this poor woman has heard about Jesus. And maybe she heard about how he had healed the leper. Maybe she had heard about how that, that, that this wild man just across the lake, that Jesus had helped him. Either way, she had heard that Jesus provided hope for those who lived on the fringes of society, those who dealt with and were perpetually unclean. His touch had power, and he was not afraid to touch anyone, even the unclean, and that was her. She needed his touch, and this explains her thinking to us, verse 28. When you read verse 28, what you realize is that this, this woman, you realize what, that, that she had come to realize that Jesus was her only hope. Jesus was her only hope. She believed with all her heart that she could, if she could just get to him and, t- and touch the hem of his garments, she would be healed. And she displayed her determination to get to Jesus by approaching him in a place that she, for at least 12 years, she had not ventured into, which was a crowd. Some of you hate crowds. You're like Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra once said, you know, that place is so crowded, no one goes there anymore, anymore right? You don't, you don't go there. If there's a crowd, you stay away. You hate crowds. Well, for this woman, crowds hated her. She was unclean. So as she elbowed her way through the people, she was causing ceremonial defilement for everyone that she touched. This was a great, great risk she was taking. For if she had been recognized, she would, she would have been publicly humiliated. She would have been ridiculed. A crowd like that might have gotten worked up and stoned her. But for her, it was a risk worth taking. She believed Jesus would heal her. It was her only hope. When did you reach that place in your life? Have you reached that place in your life? Have you come to understand that Jesus is the only hope you have? And if you're here and and you're lost today, you, like this woman, need to see Jesus and get to Jesus. He's the only hope you have. He's the only source of salvation. If you've never trusted in him for salvation, then you you need to come to him. He is your only hope. You need to touch him by faith. And that's what it takes. It's faith. And that's what we're going to circle back to here in just a moment. So her disease, her desire to be healed, and the third point, her deliverance. Four characteristics about her deliverance. Her deliverance was powerful, it was personal, it was profound, and it was permanent. First, from verse 29, her deliverance was powerful. When she was near enough to him, she reached out a trembling hand, she touched his garment. 
The word might make it sound, the word used there might make it seem like she grabbed his garment. And in that very instant, she received what none of the doctors or their, or their foolish remedies could give her. She was healed instantly. She felt the change in her body. She knew her condition had changed. She was a different woman. A powerful healing had taken place. So powerful that the Savior knew power had gone out from him. Which leads to the second characteristic of her deliverance. Her deliverance was personal. As soon as this woman touches him, Jesus knows what has happened. He knows that power has gone out of him. This is, this is the word dunamis, the word power. And it's the first time Mark has used it. We get our modern words dynamite and dynamic from it. Jesus knows what has happened. Power has gone out from him. Which this, this is a brief shadow. The fact that power had left him. This is a brief shadow of the cross here. In our story here, Jesus lost power so that she could gain strength. On the cross, he lost his life so that we could live forever. The only way for Jesus to give us his power in life was to go through our weakness and our death. So he asks the question there in verse 30, Who touched my clothes? And of course, there were dozens of people touching him and bumping into him. This is a fact pointed out by the disciples. But, but, but her touch, this touch... It was different. It had a qualitative difference to it. It was a touch uh, accompanied by faith. Many touched him, but only one touched him with the hand of faith. So Jesus calls out for who's touched him. And it's not because he didn't already know. He certainly knew. He sought her out because he wanted to give her more than just physical healing. He wanted to move her beyond her somewhat superstitious faith. He wanted to bring her to a place of salvation. When Jesus spoke to this woman, you'll notice that she fell before him in fear, which in these successive miracles that we've been looking at from the middle of Mark chapter 4 with the calming of the sea to the healing of the demoniac, now to this woman, the response to Jesus' power is always fear. And this is the same reason that she came to him silently instead of coming to him openly. She was, she was afraid of rejection. She was afraid of an accusation of unclean. She was afraid of the crowd and what they might do to her. Well, she needn't fear. Jesus was not interested in humiliating her. He was not interested in driving her away from his presence. He was not interested in preaching a sermon on uncleanness to her. He was interested in helping her with her problem. And Jesus got the response from her he ultimately wanted. She came before him. She bowed at his feet and confessed everything to him. The text says she told him the whole truth. She told her whole story. The confession of her sickness, the confession of her faith, the confession of her healing, the confession of her need for mercy. In fact, Luke says she declared it in the presence of all the people. So everybody around heard about her story. This is an open, public confession. She is confessing before men, which means she is to be confessed before her Father in heaven. And if you want Jesus to move you past sort of a small, superstitious faith to a greater, soul-converting faith, I think what this is teaching us is start telling him the whole truth about you. Don't hide. <clears throat> Tell him the whole truth. 
Because guess what? He already knows it. Come out from underneath shame. Come out from, from underneath doubt. Come out from underneath what it is, whatever it is you're hiding from, and tell the whole truth. Third characteristic of her deliverance from Jesus, verse 34. Her deliverance was profound. Profound. He calls her daughter. This is the only time Jesus ever calls a female by this name. The word signifies the fact that they are in, they're in a different relationship now, her and Jesus. It is a word of tenderness, a word of peace, a word of acceptance. You see, she got more than just physical healing that day. All her adult life, she's been in an outcast, a nobody, dwelling in isolation and loneliness. But now, she's hearing that she's been taken in, taken in by God. Her faith has brought her into a profound relationship with Jesus Christ. One minute, she was an outcast. The next moment, she was in the family of God. The word whole is the same word translated saved throughout the rest of the New Testament. It means to be rescued from all harm and danger. She got more than just healing. She was made eternally whole. She was rescued eternally. All harm, all danger was set aside and she was given a profound relationship to Jesus. Just like this woman, all those who come to Jesus in faith, they think maybe they're getting one thing, but they get far more than they ever bargained for. Isn't that true of your life? Isn't that certainly true of my life? Thinking I'm coming to Jesus for one thing. Sure, I'm coming for salvation. But as I get further up and further into that salvation, in knowing him and in knowing the truth of his word, I see grace and I see mercy and I see salvation that, wow, I hadn't even scratched the surface of at the beginning. she gotten much more than she bargained for, profoundly more. Fourth characteristic of her deliverance, her deliverance was permanent. He tells her to go in what? Go in peace. His words let her know that she has done the right thing in coming to him. Done the right thing in, though unclean, touching him. Jesus doesn't throw the word peace around flippantly. Peace belongs only to those who have made their peace with God. Here's a woman who has a need, knows there's no answer on a human level for her need. She knows she's a sinner. She lives with the symbol of her sin every day. Every day of her life for 12 years, she's literally gone through all of the ceremonial things that you can imagine again and again and again. She's done these things. Maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this remedy, maybe that remedy, maybe this will work. The idea of sin and corruption and being hopeless is clear to her. She can't do anything about it. She comes in faith. She comes in this unwavering confidence that Jesus can heal her. And then she knows whose presence She's in. She falls at his feet in worship. He calls her daughter, affirms that she can go in peace, healed of her affliction, recovered back to health, recovered back to society, recovered back to her family if she has one, recovered back to the synagogue, back to worship, back to God. What a glorious picture of our salvation in Christ portrayed here. And I'll just conclude with this, and here's what I need to drive home. This passage is really about one thing. It's about radical faith. This woman experienced healing that day, not because she touched his garment, 
but because she she exercised faith in Jesus and in his power. When her faith touched his power, his power changed her life. Listen to how Bishop J.C. Ryle, he summarizes the meaning of this passage beautifully. He says, Of all the Christian graces, none is so frequently mentioned in the New Testament as faith, and none is so highly commended. Hope brings an eager expectation of good things to come. Love brings a warm and willing heart. Faith brings an empty hand and receives everything and can give nothing in return. No grace is so important to the Christian's own soul. By faith we begin, by faith we live, by faith we stand. We walk by faith and not by, sa- by sight. By faith we overcome, by faith we have, we have peace, by faith we enter into rest. No grace should be the subject of so much self-inquiry. We should often ask ourselves, do I really believe? Is my faith true, genuine, and the gift of God? May we never rest until we can give a satisfactory answer to those questions. There's but one thing needful if we want salvation. That one thing is the hand of faith. You know in the crowd that day there were dozens of people with physical, spiritual, emotional needs, but only one lady got any help. Dozens touched Jesus, but only one was transformed and went away at peace. Why? Because only one looked at Jesus through the eyes of faith. She believed he could help her, and she did whatever she had to do to touch him. When she touched him, she was made whole. Don't be one of those people who simply bump or brush up against Jesus and leave unchanged. If you need help, come to him. He has the power to change your your situation, your life, your illness, whatever. You need help, get to him and touch him by faith. But notice, notice Jairus. Remember Jairus? The father at the beginning of the text. If Jesus was going to help Jairus' daughter... The text makes it clear. He didn't have a moment to spare, yet he spared it. He spared it, didn't he? Next week, we're going to look at why he made Jairus wait and the way in which these two passages uh, link up is very, very profound. So let's pray together and we'll be finished. Father, thank you for your word and our time in it together this morning. Lord, I pray that you would sow this, the truths here very, very deeply into our hearts. And um, Lord, continue to work this passage in us and through us by your Holy Spirit. Fill in, fill in the gaps that have been left open this morning, God. And um, I just pray that uh, you would use a text like this to draw us unto yourself. For the most hurting of us, the most suffering, those in, in the deepest places of perpetual sorrow, we would look at this and we would look at what it means to live by radical faith. And in living that way, see what Jesus therefore has for us, which is peace, which is profound relationship to him, which is uh, eternal, an eternal home with him and our Heavenly Father. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.